This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Ailey, Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer-songwriter and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We broadcast from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, unceded lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and a dozen more indigenous nations. We acknowledge them and thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is Psalm by Wisława Szymborska, the Polish Nobel laureate. Oh, the leaky boundaries of man-made states. How many clouds float past them with impunity. How much desert sand shifts from one land to another. How many mountain pebbles tumble onto foreign soil in provocative hops. Need I mention every single bird that flies in the face of frontiers, or alights on the roadblocks at the border? A humble robin, still its tail resides abroad, while its beak stays home. If that weren't enough, it won't stop bobbing. Among innumerable insects, I'll single out only the ant, between the border guard's left and right boots blithely ignoring the questions, where from and where to. Oh, to register in detail, at a glance, the chaos, prevailing on every continent. Isn't that a privet on the fair bank, smuggling its hundred thousandth leaf across the river? And who with the octopus with impudent long arms would disrupt the sacred bounds of territorial waters? And how can we talk of order overall when the very placement of the stars leaves us doubting just what shines for whom. Not to speak of the fog's reprehensible drifting and dust blowing all over the steps as if they hadn't been partitioned and the voices coasting on obliging airwaves, that conspiratorial squeaking, those indecipherable mutters. Only what is human can truly be foreign the rest is mixed vegetation, subversive molds, and wind. And our second regular feature is a free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. 
Thinking of borders brings to contradiction, to the dangerous edge of things, the honest thief, the tender murderer, the superstitious atheist, in the words of Robert Browning. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly, no need for edits, in response to this prompt. Describe a border in your life, metaphoric or concrete, and explain how that border is either a space to be honored or a space to be feared, or perhaps a line to be resisted and then overcome. In any case, a border, as the journalist James Crawford writes, is never simply a line, a marker, a wall, or an edge. First, it's an idea. Okay, start writing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Okay, now we're headed over to Pilsen Community Books. All right, well, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. For those who don't know, my name is Mandy Medley. I'm one of the worker owners here at Pilsen Community Books. Um, we're a radical bookstore and a worker cooperative. Um, so everyone that works here owns it. And I am one of, one of, one of the workers. Um, and I am so, so honored um, to introduce this event tonight with Susan and Bill in celebration of On the Wings of a Hummingbird. Um, Bill Ayers is an author, activist, and educator, and legend, and you should check out his really great podcast called Under the Tree. Um, And our guest of honor here tonight, Susan Mills. Um, Until Susan Mills moved to Vermont a couple of years ago, she ran an immigration law firm in Providence and the Boston area as a Spanish-speaking attorney for 20-plus years. She prepared asylum cases for thousands of immigrants from Central America with a focus on unaccompanied teenagers. Her work, as well as her life experiences as a community activist, family member of refugees from El Salvador, and a part of the lesbian feminist community was certainly inspirational for this novel. Thank you so much, Susan and Bill. Yeah, Thank you, Mandy. Um, I thought his was the longer biography. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to be here, and thank you, Mandy. And I'd just like to say a quick word before Susan takes over and tells us about her novel and then we'll get into conversation our our hope is that Susan will read a little bit and talk a little bit about the book then I'll ask her a couple of questions but we are very eager to be in dialogue with you so as she reads as she talks formulate your questions and your comments because we'd love to hear that the other comment I want to make before we start is that we're living in an era where the public square is closing the public is disappearing as a concept. And when we have institutions like Pilsen Community Books, an independent bookstore, worker-owned, worker-run, it's essential that we keep this place alive. So I urge you to buy a book tonight, buy Susan's book. If If you buy Susan's book, you could also buy any other book in the store, and Susan will sign it. So, so that's <laughs> so buy Moby Dick, and, and but the point is that's funny. I'm going to mention the Moby point Dick. is a serious point, and that is that this is a valuable institution. As universities and libraries and other spaces are under attack and disappearing, here we are in an open space where we can face one another authentically without masks. Well with masks, um, but authentically, and have a real conversation. So thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Community Books, and Susan. All the same thank yous. Thanks for coming, you guys. Um, 
I, I, I'm going to try to keep my part to sort of ten, a little bit more than 10 minutes and leave a lot for discussion with you guys and with, with Bill. Um, and I apologize in advance. I do a little too much. I depend a little bit too much on what I have written, um, but I'll try. I'm, I'm starting to learn it. So um, so I, I start with a line that I've often found inspirational of a song. Um, this, the group is Manu Chao, um, and the song is called El Viento, or The Wind. And it's very short. The line is, el hambre viene, el hombre se va. Hunger comes, the man leaves. And I'd say my book is a little bit more complicated than that, but I feel like it's part of the message. It's just so simple. It's just human. Um, the simple humanity behind who immigrates to the U.S. Um, so the book um, overlaps considerably with various social justice issues, and I'm, I'm going to sort of talk about three themes or issues um, and, and, and how I talk about it. The first is identity, and, and Moby Dick comes into this. So I feel like one way to look at um, Petra, my main character, is that it's a book about her identity or coming of age. Um, um, not in the sort of identity politics way, but about um, uh, who am I and what's my purpose in this world. And I feel like it's just like Moby Dick, except the twist here is that um, Petra is... 15 years old, and she has to figure it out in the context of struggling to survive and thrive in a poor gang-ridden village in Guatemala, um, where her choices are seriously limited. Um, so she's coming of age amidst trauma, post-trauma, and eventually flees to the United States. Um, when Petra's five, uh, her mother flees to the U.S. from her abusive husband, who's Petra's father, and Petra and her eight-year-old brother Carlos are raised by their grandparents, who they call Nono and Nona. Um, Petra is especially close to Nono, who's raising her with a, a good dose of Mayan mythology, uh, which inspires Petra and helps her cope with the heavy hand that she's been dealt. Um, Petra's aware that she starts with many disadvantages, but's inspired by her Mayan ancestry t and, and her grandfather's myth-telling to find her way through to something good and meaningful. Um, so the first selection I'm going to read uh, takes place when she's five. Um, through teary eyes and from under a bed, Petra watches her father hit her mother and throw an iron at her. Uh, her brother, Carlos, who's eight, uh, tries to defend their mother. Uh, and finally, her father leaves the house. Carlos bravely says that he intends to kill his father next time. And her mother announces that they can no longer live this way, and she's going to leave for the United States. Um, and while trying to soothe Petra and calm her to sleep, her mother gives her a clay hummingbird um, that she calls Alucinia, uh, which her father, Petra's Nono, had given to her at about the same age. Um, and she tells this story to Petra. Um, Petra's eyes tilted up to her mother, and she hears her mother's voice sounding like a delicate song. So here's that story. Long ago, her mother began, at the very beginning of everything, the people had a hard life. Their lives were even more challenging than your life, Petita. One year, a great drought dried up all the crops, and the people began to starve. They began to lose faith in the Earth Mother. In anger, they called on the mother to help them. A great thunderstorm came that tore down trees, washed away the fragile land, and burned their houses. Then the rain stopped and didn't return for four years. The people noticed that the only creature that still seemed to thrive was the hummingbird. Petra interrupted, Mama, I think it was a mistake not to respect their mother. Hush, Petra, listen. People had already observed that the hummingbird was so fragile and light and beautiful that she could approach the most delicate openings of a flower without moving a single petal. Her feathers glowed in the sun like drops of rain and reflected all the colors. Her long tongue let it bypass the often rough and bitter, outer <coughs> and bitter outer layer to find the hidden treasures underneath. She lived on nectar and searched for the sweetness of life. 
In her fascination with her mother's story, Petra forgot to worry about her mother leaving her. So the people watched the hummingbird to see how she lived. They found that the hummingbird had a secret passageway to the underworld where she would go to gather honey. The gods had assigned to the hummingbird a job as subtle and light as the bird. She was in charge of carrying the thoughts of humans between the earth and the gods. Some people tried to enter the passage to get honey for themselves, but could not enter. Only the hummingbird had access because only she had never lost faith in the mother. When they understood this, the people were inspired to regain their faith. Soon the mother took care of them again. The hummingbird opened people's hearts. When the hurt that caused them to close their hearts got a chance to heal, their hearts were free to open again. Petra held tightly to the lingering specter, wrapping the beauty of the hummingbird around her like a colorful rebozo. Her eyes were closed, the clay hummingbird grasped tightly in a hand which caressed her cheek. Its heartbeat began to pulse against her palm. She would talk to this Alucinia later. The wooden bed groaned as her mother stood. She gathered a few things together, then ran over the hills to her parents' house. So that ends up playing quite a role in the, in the story and it has some of the underlying themes. Um, so the second sort of theme here is the role of imagination and myth in, in reaching toward a future of integrity, um, the role of spirituality and healing. <laughs> Um, Petra will participate in something like a returning warrior ceremony in, in the story, a process bring, that brings together community with a moral framework. And the story is written in a light magical realism um, style, which relates you know, to the themes that are being discussed. Um, so the hummingbird set, the myth sets something of an underlying theme for the story as Petra with Alucinia's help, which is really just a part of, becomes part of herself like an imaginary friend, tries to find her way forward. Before the book is over, Petra will eventually have a complex reunification with her mother, processing feelings of abandonment and guilt along the way. So uh, th another part of the book is Petra's two best friends, Emilio and Justina, are both torn from her in different ways because of the grip of gangs in the village. Um, Emilio begins a descent into gang life around 10 years old and has a hand in the murder of Justina about nine months before the novel starts and only days after Petra and Justina had kissed for the first time. So she's also trying to figure out how she fits in her world via her attraction to women. Petra hates what Emilio has become, but she struggles with the question of whether the kind boy that she knew as it was her close friend isn't still there somewhere buried inside him. Um, despite the loss of her mother and her two best friends, Petra undertakes this complex journey to find a way to, towards a, a better future. Um, I, I would say that Mayan mythology in the story is used to explore the blurriness between good and evil that inevitably arises in an environment like that. Um, that in-between plane in which some of Petra's most transformative realizations take place, um, and in-between made necessary by the impossibility of the two worlds in which she exists, uh, Guatemala in which she has no hope, and uh, United States in which she has only hope. Um, it's only in that limbo that she finds the ability to step into her memories of trauma and, and name what's happened to her, her loved ones, and even to her enemies. Um, only in that limbo can she, as her guide Alucinius tells her, look back in order to move ahead. So um, I guess you guys already know I was in immigration law practice um, and a lot of that was inspirational for this. But for years I just heard story after story, wrenching story, horrific stories of violence and emotional wreckage. And it was very uh, exciting to turn all those stories into creative expression, a way to connect artistically and imaginatively and emotionally with the work I had done professionally and in a space where I didn't always have time to deal with secondary trauma, really. Um, to combine um, aspects of many stories I'd heard, make up a few, and set it within a framework that made it somewhat uplifting, 
it, perhaps a little bit more than reality is reflected in reality, was very nice. Um, so at the beginning of the novel, um, one more selection I'm going to read. Um, Petra's older brother, Carlos, is walking now 15-year-old Petra um, to school as her not-so-strong bodyguard. Emilio stops them on the road. He flirts with Petra in a threatening way, and he beats up Carlos, and then he warns her that her grandfather has access to some valuable secret, which the gang wants. And that storyline of the valuable secret becomes the thriller part of the novel. Um, it's not really a thriller. <laughs> um, Petra runs away, leaving Carlos alone, but turns back to Emilio and says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Um, the remark confuses both Petra herself and Emilio, but speaks to her confusion about how to understand her former friend, Emilio. Um, at that evening, the family sits together. Nono tries to ease the tensions by recounting a folktale, which involves a hen defending herself against a coyote's lies. Uh, Nono has just called Emilio a particularly depraved coyote. I'm not going to read the, the folktale, but this is what comes after that. Um, upon hearing, hearing Emilio's name, Nona appeared at the doorway. Oigame, that young man deserves a chance. I see potential in him. Mujer, enough of your romantic ideas about Emilio, Nono said. He's become a menace to the community. Even young men we knew as cute children can be corrupted in the local gang. It's no good to deny what we can plainly see. Nona pursed her lips. Some young men can be grumpy and reticent with their words, and her lips jetted out toward Carlos. Others lash out with violence and anger. Generally, they grow into more high-minded ways. She thrust her chin up sharply, and the ridges of her forehead deepened. Petra's pacing came to a stop next to Nono. She said, Emilio's rotten, Nona. Maybe not so rotten as you think. Her insides roiled, but she had to stay calm and respect her Nona. How can you say that? He killed Justina. He was with the group that killed her. Yes, I know. What's the difference? Petra's cheeks had turned bright red. You don't really know what he did that day, do you? Or what might have led him to stand with those boys who took her? Petra began to pace about the porch. He was there. He's as guilty as the others. Are you sure, Petra? asked Nona. She sucked air and threw the gap in her front teeth. Sure enough that calmness eluded her now. Her chest muscles tensed against her heart, and she wrapped her arms around herself. And Alicinia stirred in her heart. Uh, the edge off slightly, she said, Nona, I can't forgive Emilio. I don't want anything to do with him. That I know. Although... There was that moment before she turned and ran when he seemed almost human again, vulnerable even. There was something in him when we were friends years ago. Maybe someday. Carlos interrupted. You apologized to him after he had, in, had me at his feet. The heel of her hand knocked against her temple, then pressed against the thick black line of her brow. Of course. She hadn't realized. Carlos, I'm sorry. I looked at him and saw a wounded animal. He looked scared and helpless. There was more, but she couldn't say it out loud. Something gnawed at the back of her mind the reason she kept thinking she owed Emilio an apology. She had done something, she didn't know what, that pushed Emilio toward the vicious, left, vicious life he led. Whenever that feeling came over her, dread weighed down her lungs, and panic pounded in her heart. Then it promptly slipped away. He looked helpless. While you decided to run off and leave me on the ground? Confused, Petra's mind scrambled for words. Nono said, enough, everyone. It was a moment, a charged moment. We will all stir the events in our minds until some greater wisdom arises. That's all we can do. The last of the light flickered off the tips of Nono's ears. Deep furrows lined his forehead. The creases around his mouth, grown up around years of struggle between worry and good humor, quivered. Petra leaned her head against his shoulder. Her heart stopped racing. Quietly, Nona said, Petra, let us meet after school tomorrow and go to church together. See, si, Nona, I would like that. Yes, church would quiet the upheaval inside her. The hen had gathered up her experience and turned it into useful wisdom. 
Petra would never believe the coyote's lies. Her grandmother might think Emilio just wanted to court her, but Petra knew better. No one could claim innocence after creating such terror. The pain of losing Justina throbbed against her skull. Her death had stung so deeply, there had been no room left to explore the details of what had happened. But Nona had a point. There was more to understand. Why did the gang kill Justina? So, um, um, so this is a couple more thoughts. What, what I learned from my immigration law practice um, was not what to do about immigration, but really the humanity in each person one at a time. And I just hope that someday when there's a new immigration policy, it will force the immigration service to treat people like humans. I'm not necessarily optimistic about that, though. Um, like everyone else, immigrants, and I, I'm actually quoting my brother here. He's got a blurb in the book. Um, <laughs> they're, uh, first and foremost, immigrants are complicated human beings. Um, they're people with complicated pasts, complex motives, and beyond all people with dreams and desires just like the rest of us. And um, as my former law partner said, almost 201, people don't leave their families, their culture, their language, and their lives without feeling like they don't have a choice. The notion of illegality as it applies to human beings is an invented concept applied chiefly to the poor and very often to vic victims of past US policy, um, such as Latino gang members in, in Los Angeles, citizens of banana republics in Central America. Um, so novels, it turns out, works the same way as immigration law, uh, one character at a time. Lawyers and writers actually have a lot in common. It's all about telling stories about people and making readers and judges um, empathize with them. So the great thing about writing a novel is you get to pose a lot of questions, ponder them for a while, but people actually think it's a better story if you don't give them the answers. So it's actually better if you don't have the answers. <laughs> um, and the, the last issue I just wanted to bring out, um, I feel like the issue of restorative or transformative justice is, is in here. Um, it plays out in the novel as forgiveness and healing. Um, and, but I'm fascinated by how people who have come from civil war or you know, seriously gang-invaded countries, infested countries, um, how they manage to live with themselves and each other again um, after it's over, when they're no longer in that situation. Um, what role forgiveness plays or, or not. Um, and, and yet somehow people have to move on, um, largely in continued close proximity with the people who may have done them serious harm. Um, so Emilio is a central problem for Petra in the story. Um, he poses danger to her in Guatemala. Um, she knows the terrible things he's done in the past. Um, and she has memories of him as a good person that she just can't shake. And she also believes in the Christian concept of compassion for those who sin. Um, and finally, she feels like the anger and the bitterness that she feels towards her, him, she knows is keeping her from moving, moving forward herself in her life. So the novel ultimately reveals hope, but also continued risk, reconciliation, but also continued pain, uh, the chance at an immigration status that might help Petra um, to see her loved ones, but also the uncertainty of her future as an immigrant through a, a largely unjust process. Um, and so in my law practice and, and as in this book, I hope to tell a different story as we show the government that there's another way, another way is possible that immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees are welcome here and are our neighbors, our coworkers, our families. Thank you, Susan. Um, we're gonna have a conversation and as I said, I wanna I want invite you in um, very, very soon. But I have a, a wealth of questions myself and I think I'd like to start with <clears throat> what I found quite intriguing and what you were talking about, because 
I wholly agree that lawyers have, successful defense lawyers have to figure out how to tell a story. There has to be a narrative that either a jury or a judge can see that the one-dimensional character put before them, you know, by the prosecutor or by the police is not the true person. There's something else there. And the best lawyers I've known, um, including my wife, have always found a way to tell a different story that's more dimensional. So, and I appreciate your comment that you have to do that as a lawyer, you have to do that as a novelist. Mm. And yet, I have a couple of writerly questions. Um, <laughs> one is that legal writing is quite different than writing fiction. Indeed. So we, I think you uncovered that commonality, but what, what was your process of discovering how to write fiction and tell that story and not legal writing, which I tend to think is much more serviceable, but um, for a very particular end. Well, I would say um, I have an answer on both sides of that. One is, in in a way, legal writing never came to me naturally. I I didn't like that sort of antagonistic process, Um, and I always wanted to make it be a little bit more of a story. And on the other end, writing novels, it's very much something I'm still learning. Um, I, you know, I'm, this book was a, a, an interesting start, a great start, and I'm hoping to, you know, to get better. And um, it's, it turns out that it's a whole other profession. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so what's your writing process? <clears throat> oh, write and rewrite and talk to people. And, I, you know, I'm part of an editing group, so we get to read our, our things aloud and get comments from people. Um, then I rewrite again, and I read a lot. I'm just reading constantly, so... Well, you have to come and give a guest, guest lecture in my writing class because I tell people, <laughs> if you want to learn how to write, write. And if you want to learn another way to write, read. And, is, and those are the two things you have to do all the time. The problem Words is that, on the page. The problem is that everybody writes differently, so it's really, hard to, so it's really hard to figure out, okay, so I just learned that lesson, and now you're giving me that lesson. Well, <laughs> you know, that's true, although, you know, I teach at Stateville Prison, and I teach memoir writing. Mm. And <clears throat> one of the things that I convince my students of right from the beginning is that we read a lot of memoirs, but my argument to them is you need to read like a peer, not like a consumer. In other words, you need to ask the question, right. how did this colleague of mine, the famous memoirist, you know, Elizabeth Alexander, how did she solve the writerly problem that I'm facing. Right. So I, I think you're right. Read a lot, write a lot. That's kind of the <laughs> ticket, right? Yeah. And um, ideally get an MFA. <laughs> yeah. Do you have an MFA? <laughs> no. Go get one. You no. Get it at Bennington. <laughs> you're in Vermont. Go to Bennington. Right. They have a low low residency program. You could do I've, it. I've kind of been looking at alternatives <clears throat> for how you, how you learn, actually, from other people, you know, to write and uh, there's this thing called in Boston called Grub Street, which is very limited. You know, yeah. it's just it's good. Probably got a lot of good things in there, but it's only limited number of people. And then there's MFAs, which generally are lots of money and lots of time and require a change of life. And you know, one of the greatest ways to do it. one of the greatest American writers ever is James Baldwin, and he's not only an essayist and a memoirist, but a novelist and and a playwright. And Baldwin made a really interesting distinction. He said that. When I know what I'm thinking, I preach. And he was a child yeah. preacher. When I'm trying to find out what I think or trying to find out what I'm avoiding thinking, I write. Yeah. So he said, I write to learn. So what did you learn writing? 
Boy, I, I read that quote and I, I studied it several times to try to sort of absorb what he was saying there. And I have to tell you that I, I grew up with James Baldwin. Um, you know, he's one of the first writers that my, my mother gave me to read. Um, and the problem with that is I was too young and I don't remember it all that well anymore. But um, I'm sorry, your question was something else. Well, what, I was asking you what you learned in, what I learned, yeah. in, in writing this Definitely. book because you knew a lot. But when you were a lawyer and talking to other lawyers, you knew what you thought, so you could, in Baldwin's terms, preach. Right. But here, you were trying to discover something. And so what did you learn writing I, this? I do think that that's an intimate part of you know, writing fiction anyway. Um, I don't write memoir, and I'm not interested in writing memoir, but I find that um, writing creatively is, I mean, you always bring yourself to it. Right. It's. I mean, it's Petra is has a lot of me in there, and as I was writing her, I was her. You know, I was like, I loved her, and I was in, involved with her, and and you know, I cried when bad things happened to her, and I, I still when I read the passages when mm -hmm. that are difficult, um, yeah, and and then I missed her when when it was gone when I was done. Um, you can revisit her every day if you want to, right? <laughs> it's not the same. <clears throat> it's not the same. I think James Baldwin also said that when he was done with it, he, he also had something similar kind of experience, but when he was done, he found that he'd gone somewhere with that person. He'd resolved some kind of issue that he was working through his head, mm -hmm. and then he would put it aside and he was on to the next issue. Exactly. And I, I do feel like that's kind of true. Like, I missed her, and now I'm kind of over it and on to something else. Great. <laughs> You know, another novelist I wanted to bring into the room is Russell Banks, who died two weeks ago, um, the great uh, New York writer. Mm. And <clears throat> I think his greatest book is Cloud Splitter, but there's a debate about which book of his to read. But his first breakthrough novel was called Continental Drift. And the book ends with this sentence. Banks writes, Good cheer and mournfulness over lives other than our own even wholly invented lives, no, especially wholly invented lives, deprive the world as it is, some of the greed it needs to continue to be itself. Sabotage and subversion, then, are this book's objective. Go, my book, and help destroy the world as it is. I kind of love that. Yeah, that's I mean, great. What a weird way to end a book. Go, my book, and destroy the world as it is in the hopes that we can build a more just and more peaceful and more balanced world. Right, so that's a totally poetic way of saying, and I know a lot of people here probably are not big Obama fans, but he had a, a quote that, a little less poetic, but was quite much like that. You know, when, He said, when I think about how I understand my role as citizen, the most important uh, stuff I've learned, I think I've learned from novels. It has to do with empathy. It had to do, has to do with being comfortable with the notion that the world is complicated and full of grays, but there's still truth there to be found, and that you have to strive for that and work for that and the notion that it's possible to connect with someone else, even though they're very different from you. And I, I would say that that's essential to the process of social change and mm -hmm. just connecting to our world. Yeah, and I think you began with that. But but you raised the question of empathy, and you and I both read mm -hmm. um, an indigenous writer's um, essay. And the essay is called something like, we don't need more empathy, we need love. And I think you resonate to that as well. Yeah, she, so she was talking about, she said that a lot of sort of white authors who are writing across difference justify doing that by saying that they have empathy for the group that they're writing with for. And I, I feel like that's the wrong place to put empathy. It's more like empathy is you're hope, hoping to create that in a reader by reading the character. Right. But I, 
I would the adjectives I would say are more important are sort of respect and mm -hmm. and knowledge mm -hmm. about that culture um, that you're writing about. Um, it's all in there somewhere. Yeah, it is. And you but have a note in the very beginning, before the story begins, yeah. you have a note about a, a conversation that's going on everywhere, and that is a note about appropriation versus appreciation. Maybe you'd say a word about your thinking about that today, because you are a white author, writing, not in the voice of, but writing about a set of characters. So you have an hour, because I... I have a lot to say on this issue. <laughs> Those of us who are staying over the night will meet in the back room. But um, one one of my first thoughts is like, what's the alternative? You know, what what are people looking for if they don't want us to write across difference? First of all, I think that there's lots of authors who write um, across difference um, and do it well, and nobody ever criticizes their work. Um, like. Um, I don't know, one example is Colin McCann. I don't, that's not maybe not the best-known book, um, called A Paragon. He's writing in the voice of an Israeli and a Palestinian, and he's Ir Irish. Um, but, you know, there's a ton of... Steinbeck did it forever, and uh, Isabella Allende does it. Anyway, nobody ever, like, criticizes and, those people. And James Baldwin did it in Giovanni's room. Right, right. I mean, he wasn't... Yeah, I mean, all, all, right. Write, all fiction writers do it in one way or another. Men write about women, but we're all writing about something that's fiction, presumably, then we, it's not in our experience. So anyway, my, my, um, one of my initial questions is, if white people are not writing about BIPOC people, for instance, then it seems to me that what we're doing is giving BIPOC people the, the burden, the complete burden of representing themselves. And there should be a role for white, A, there should be a role for white al allies to, to help in that process. But B, if we don't, then we're writing, then white people are writing about all white communities and all white experiences is that is that really like what we want to be doing um, and 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 I would just say that you know there's writing in the voice of, of a, a bipoc person but there's also um, secondary characters and if you don't have one you'll have the other which hopefully which requires the same kind of research and understanding I think I think it's useful to read people like Alicia I think it's useful to read Tony Morrison uh, you know, playing in the shadows, or I can't remember the name of the essay, playing in the dark. But I think it's useful to read those things to challenge ourselves. And referring back to Alicia Elliott, I don't think she would use the word ally so much as she'd be comfortable using the word comrade or something like that. In other words, hmm. it's not reaching out in a lady bountiful gesture. Right. It's reaching across as... I mean, you, you're in me, a kind of sense of yeah. solidarity. We're facing the same human predicament in different ways. But I want to be your right. comrade, not so much your helper. And I do think it's true that, you know, I'm writing in the voice of this Guatemalan girl with Mayan ancestry. Absolutely, if it was written by a Guad Guatemalan woman from a village in Guatemala, it would be very different than, I mean, there's a, there's a level of nuance which I'm never going to get. Um, I just feel like that's okay. I don't know if you know where I'm coming from. We, we're all like making stabs at sort of reaching people and, and reaching some understanding about what's happening to these people and the more the better. And perhaps your book can open up a conversation about that and many other issues. And I do think and this is welcome, a very important conversation. And, and you'll welcome that. I mean, that's, absolutely. that's what you want. Yeah. Um, the, um, let's turn for one minute and then I'm definitely going to open it up. Um, 
Let's turn for one minute about immigration policy, because you <laughs> touched on it. And I have kind of two questions. One is, in, in, in your view, I mean, what, what intervention do you want this book to make? And how would you advise people <laughs> around immigration policy? I think immigration is such a hard problem to solve. <laughs> I really don't know what they, I mean, you know, I'd like to say open the borders and let everybody in and out and let them go wherever they want to, but that would cause revolution. It would cause this huge backlash. I think it would, uh, revolution in the bad sense, oh, I think. Oh, I, 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 I was suddenly all for it. What the hell? <laughs> no, okay. no. I think you'd have the, you know, I mean, obviously there's plenty of people who are not comfortable with even level of immigration we have now. So you increase it many fold and, and I think that I think the result would not be pretty we'd be in a civil war and, and if it was all over the world but so what are the features that you imagine a, a, right. an informed so or enlightened immigration policy what, what would be kind of the bottom line ethical guiding light I think that inevitably it has to be more open than it is now um, and I you know I, I, you know, I just think humanity is at the is at the root of it. Treating people like human beings, so it's letting families come be together. Um, probably letting workplaces get people more readily that they need to work for them. Um, asylum is kind of a joke at this point. Um, um, you know, there's uh, so many people around the world qualify for asylum, and yeah. and the United States is never going to let them all in. And so they have to come up with these and ar arbitrary either. categories to, to keep people out. You know, and, I, I asked yeah. Robin Kelly if borders should be abolished and without missing a beat, he said yes. And then how we, what we do with that is, of course, another question. But from a larger point of view, I mean, I think that I think I'm in favor of abolishing borders. Or another way of saying it is, you look at the immigration in this country and whether it's Vietnamese, Filipino, you know, what you're looking at is a history of war, conquest, and right. imperialism, and then the kind of the kind of problems that you created coming home. But it, right, no, I mean, I totally agree with that. But it's the solution that's the problem. If you open the borders and let everybody in, I can easily imagine, you know, a Trump autocrat like taking power and becoming an awful society as a result. Mm -hmm. So it's just what would happen. You know, one last question. <laughs> Juno Diaz um, says that this is a book that is filled with the human capacity for repair mm. and, and regeneration. So say one word about that and then... Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a... You know, we were talking before we started here about the sensitivity trainings and, and people, the, the sort of... Uh, jumping on people in, in universities, for instance, when they say something that's whatever. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not summarizing well, it very well, but... We were um, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, in all those sort of very small ways, it's coming yeah. coming out and people are getting um, kicked in the butt for it. Um, I think that... Sorry, I lost track of your question, initial question, like, oh, the... You know, what is the role Healing of, and what, what, why does Diaz say about your book right, right. that it's filled with grace and with the possibility of human repair? Um, I, so I, I, my goal in the book is to uh, not have 
Petra be defined by her past, by the traumas that have happened to her. And she is very keen herself on figuring out how to heal and get past it. And so I think, I, I believe that a lot of people are maybe more able to get past their, their, their past traumas than, than we give them credit for. Mm. Um, and that if we hold that out and believe it in ourselves, that um, we can get past a lot of these past traumas and move on to something better. Yeah, so my I guess own that's view what is I'm that there's, when we talk about trauma, we too often lean into the idea that what, everybody needs a therapist rather than we need a revolution, and that would yeah. be the best therapy of all. But right. maybe that's just me. Anyway, yeah. let's open it up. And folks have questions, comments, be brave. We might have said a couple of controversial things. My name is John Vitamontes, and I'm so glad that uh, there's a bookstore here because I grew up in this neighborhood, and uh, I was a boy in the mid-1960s when it was very wild. And I remember, though there was taverns, every other place was a tavern. Wow. And I remember one time in the sunny day I was walking, and wouldn't you know that uh, Juan, the boyfriend of my neighbor, came running out, holding his head, blood coming down his face, and he ran across the street. I don't know how he didn't get by a car, but I ran home, and I knocked on his, you know, his family, and I said, Juan just got hit by a body, he's bleeding. And so, those times are gone. Now they here have such a nice place, books, and everything is calm. Mm. There's still some violence, but it's so much different. I'm so glad that uh, the owners put a bookstore here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I guess send everybody you know here. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Uh, and Bill, I want to ask a favor of you. Sure. You know, you you posted this event on Facebook a couple of days ago, or I don't know. I got up to page 180, which is half. As, as soon as I saw that Facebook post, I came and I bought the book. And, and, uh, <laughs> and then I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it. So uh, because I got to, you know, halfway through, and uh, it's just, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I haven't read fiction in my life. Uh, Atana E.C. Coates wrote The Water Dancer. Yeah. Uh -huh. I couldn't get it there. I'm, I'm, I'm basically a nonfiction reader. Yeah. Uh, and there was another book uh, about about mortality. You know, I'm seven years old, thinking about that. I got the book fiction. I couldn't get in there. Mm. So that's two fiction books. So then yours, I you know, I said okay, fiction. And the opening prayer about appropriation right away, that opened my mind, uh, saying that mm, sweet. you know this is this yeah, is an cool. author who is out of the culture. And she's upfront about it. Here it is. So that opened the door. And then I started reading the pages, and it just, I kept going on and on and on and on. Um, one of the characters talks about he, he uh, uh, was ashamed to use his language, and so he became a ladrino, whatever. That happened to me. Mm, yeah, ladrino. In high school, everyone, my friends spoke English, so I spoke English. And my Spanish, I didn't use Spanish at all. And so, I mean, mm. I could I could relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sixty years ago, but you were talking about violence and whether you can uh, forgive somebody, etc. 
60 years ago, my father was beaten. He came home, he walked up a three flight of stairs with a broken ankle. And I remember my mother opened the door. His face was caked with the mm -hmm. blood. And so I don't know if there was used to be some railroad tracks over here. I don't know if they ground his face into the mud, but oh my, my mom right away started cleaning his face. I couldn't even see his skin. Yeah. And then she told us to go in our bedroom and sleep. Yeah. Uh, and then the volcano scene where, uh, you know, you know, Petra talks about the volcano. I went to Ecuador one time, and I was on a bus coming home, and my girlfriend, I said, let's go to that volcano. It was a snow cap. I said, let's go. I want to go. She said, no, it will take us days to get there. And But it seemed so close. And, yeah. and so right away I thought, oh, I, that's how she must feel. That it's right there, but she wants to go. There's a mystery around the river. That, so, mm, yeah. again, this book, it really touched. And then, so I, I it's, it's, there's some passages in there that uh, caused me to choke up. Uh, some conversation with the mother, etc. Yeah. Uh, no, it's really nice. I mean, I feel um, um, gratitude that you made it halfway through, given that your your resistance to fiction. But I think fiction and nonfiction are really the same thing. They they they're all. I just think fiction is a more personal way of getting at many of the same issues. You know, at least in this but, case. You know, you raise a couple of questions that I I like to put to you. One is, you said in your opening that in this little village, the li the line is blurry between good and evil. But isn't that true here? Isn't it true of me? Yeah. So, so I just don't, I, I mean, I think I see it in your book, but it's true of all of us, right? Yeah, right. Well, that's the idea. Yeah. I mean, that's so, where you get into the, this is really a book about identity. It just happens to take place in Guatemala with that, those conditions, but it's it applies to all of us. But it also, it, the other thing that comes to me from what you just said is, that it's not just Guatemala that is scarred by violence and right. that, and that it's not like we want to have the story isn't that Guatemala is just a sewer of violence and the United States is a lovely place with green lawns no, and yeah. it's not quite that clear right <laughs> um, so right. say a word about that I mean I, I mean I think you could you could rewrite the book by about an American experience a, a you know white American or Hispanic American or whatever in, in growing up in Chicago and it it would have many parallels absolutely um, yeah I mean we all have trauma and, and violence in, in the other thing I want to mention the hummingbird uh, the allusion to the whole uh, uh, book uh, in, in, 20, in 2021 there was a hummingbird that flew from uh, Arizona, the Mexico area, to Chicago, the Broadville Hummingbird. It had never been seen in Illinois, huh. and there was a, in LaBar Woods, and it got there, and one guy saw it, he put it on the internet. I went over there, and I took photographs of it, <laughs> and you know, it, I, it took me about seven days for me to get the, yeah. a good shot, because it was moving around seven. Anyway, I, I, put, I put it on Facebook, and one of my friends in Mexico, had lost a parent, and uh, I didn't know this, but hummingbirds uh, have a, but the way you explain in the book that they are some sort of messenger from the past, etc. So this friend in Mexico asked me to uh, print out a, the picture of the hummingbird and give it to her as a birthday gift. So I did, and, and mm. so it must have meant nice. that to her, a strong feeling uh, of, of a connection of the dead parent with the hummingbird and a little, little, little narrative on it, etc. 
There are so many myths about the hummingbird, like, or, or yeah, whatever. There's so many stories about the hummingbird. That I do think it's very evocative. Um, there's another one that appears in the book about a hummingbird. There's a fire in the far in the forest, and the, every all the animals are, and the elephants and everything are standing around, like not knowing what to do. And the hummingbird goes to a lake and gets a drop and and go, goes over the fire and drops it out. And all the animals start laughing at the hummingbird, like, "What are you doing?" And and the hummingbird says, "I'm doing what I can do." So, I mean, all in all, I'm just so glad that, uh, you know, number one, Billy put it on there, and uh, <laughs> the bookstore, and yeah. I, just, I just love it. I'm, thank you I so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Others, comments, questions, concerns? Well, um, I'm a psychologist, and I'm currently working, it was my call, um, working with unaccompanied children from Central America, a spiritual director for three shelters. And most of the children that I work with are from Central America, Guatemala. I'm from Mexico. Hmm. And pretty much the same story, I forgot your name, but I grew up in this area, more on Cortez and Ashland, which it was a, a horrible street. And I feel lucky that I survived. Hmm. I'm alive here because I remember as a child being in seventh grade, we could just hear the shooting between the <coughs> members, the Latin Kings and the, uh, what were the Latin Kings and the Puerto Ricans. The Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans were always fighting with each other. Just remember grabbing my little brother and sister and going up the stairs and stand by the window to watch them, you know, shoot themselves. And we survived, or I survived. And now I'm working with the children. Yeah. And I know they have a horrible time uh, when they pass through Mexico. My country, I'm Mexican, are horrible. Mm -hmm. Are just horrible with Latin Central American mm -hmm. individuals, and especially with with the adolescents that I'm now uh, working with. So uh, I'm here to purchase your book and to learn from you. To Thanks. Enjoy my work and to be able to relate to these children that I'm now working with, and I'm just so happy to be here. I, I mean, in my job, we worked a lot with people like you, so thank you for the work you do. Again, it's really important. If I were to write this book, or a psychologist, psychologist was to write this book, we write differently. Mm. Write from a different angle, from a different, a different lens yeah. of pain, and we incorporate, in some ways, our past with what we are called to do right now, and with the work that we are doing right now. It is definitely a call for us to work with this population. So, so just a, a little psychological thing that in my, was in my mind when I wrote this book is I think that pa uh, in my mind Petra had attachment disorder. You know, her mother left her at a very young age and she was she never quite had the same, she loved her grandparents but never had quite the same bonding with them. And I think, like many teenagers, she just thinks she's invulnerable, right? But she's very independent and just um, self-sufficient, you know, in a way that I think fits with attachment disorder. Um, anyway. And, and lots of post-trauma stuff, for sure, too. You said one of the themes is Petra um, and her identity and coming of age. But you said not in an identity politics way. What did you mean? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, honestly, I haven't fully thought that out. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say it that way. But 
I like she's not thinking about racism and sexism and and classism. She's thinking about who am I um, as a person, as a as a member of the community. It's they're not unrelated concepts for sure. No. Absolutely not. But um, it's just a way that she's thinking about it. It's funny how people throw around terms like identity politics, and sometimes it's thrown around by Marxists who want you to not think about gender or mm. sexual identity or race, and that strikes me as ridiculous. And sometimes it's thrown around by Governor DeSantis. Right. To mean that, you know, I mean, in other words, these are words, and I feel the same way. We talked a minute about diversity, equity, inclusion, which gives me a nosebleed. Um, because because it's such a cliche, and because diversity, the way it's used in universities, for example, it's always about a white lens. It's always about the 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 norm is a white person, and you say, oh, I have a very diverse classroom. The hell does that even mean? Yeah. Well, the, the, it's code for I have a couple of black kids and two Hispanic kids <laughs> in my class. It's, it's so. The, the default is whiteness, and that's why the word drives me crazy, and that's also why I always step back and resist a little bit the notion of allies. So, you know, I think I want to be in solidarity, not in service, you know, um, and I think there's a, a huge difference. I don't hear that in the word ally, but I'll, I, I understand well, what you're saying. It's, I, think, yeah. I think there's a lot of ways to talk. There's a lot of ways to talk about being allies, and certainly yeah. a good ally is somebody who pays attention listens fully um, you know locks arms with they, those are all good things but I still think the word is lacking a little mm, bit and yeah. I'd, I'd rather talk about solidarity um, right. oneness with you know and that's a stronger sense to me right um, just backing up a little bit I do hear people talk about uh, cl- their school is really diverse when they have 90% black kids yeah. and, and yeah. there's a couple of white kids. It's extra it's like, diverse. It's all black. You know I mean? <laughs> right. What does that even mean? I mean, it's so yeah. preposterous. So I think we have to, it's not a question of policing the language. It's a, a question of going deeper and being more more full of empathy and love and, and identification rather than right. you know trying to find the perfect word. But I think we have to be Fully aware, paying full um, attention. And I'm, I'm thinking a little bit more as you're speaking about what I meant by this is not about identity politics. I think if it what if if it was about identity politics, I think that would give the give people the sense that there was it was a little bit more um, uh, you know articulately that Petra would as a character is more sort of articulately political and has that sort of uh, yeah that diversity background or something. And she doesn't you know she's just for her it's about herself and 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 what she's trying to do with her life. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's highly political, but you're right. She's it, not explicitly making a political gesture, but I, I often think of, um, you know, the comment, uh, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Right. So, so Petra is caught in a series of political problems, but she's not yeah, political in the way you and I might think of it. Right. Right. right, and I guess that's the distinction I'm making by not talking about it as identity politics. But yes, I do- totally agree. The personal is political; fiction is very political. Exactly, and the women's movement brought us the idea that the personal is political. Yes. So, thank you for that. <laughs> and um, I bring one more novelist into the room, and that's my daughter-in-law Rachel Dewaskin, who's a fantastic novelist. And she says literature gives us a way to look closely 
to do the work of imagining unbearable suffering, our own and everyone else's, and this should change us. And I think that's what, mm. in many ways, that's what I hear you yeah. saying is your goal. I was thinking about that book, um, A Paragon, which, again, again, people may not have read by Colin McCann, but he, he's a very good writer, and he writes in the, in the voice of this Israeli and Palestinian. You have... Um, you know, real-life groups, obviously, where Israelis and Palestinians are getting together, meeting each other, and, and hopefully doing, getting over some of the, like, vast uh, chasms between them. But, it, it, and the difference in writing is that you can, you know, you can get to know these two people so quickly and deeply w without all the defenses, without, you know, it would take a long time to get to know somebody in real life the way you can get to know them in a, in a, a fiction piece. Um, it's just, you know, there's, they're different. And um, in some ways, fiction has this advantage of being able to really understand people in a quick, deep way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think good fiction, you know, John, is, a, is an antidote to narcissism. It's an antidote to being so locked up in yourself. I mean, we all know intellectually that the world is infinite and expanding. The universe is expanding. And we are tiny little finite dots, but still we wake up every morning with the illusion that my point of view is somehow universal, and it's not. <laughs> Fiction can take us out of that normal narcissism. Yeah. I think that's important. Um, so you said that if we had hours, we could talk about <laughs> appropriation and um, versus appreciation, and I think I think it's an important discussion. But the podcast that. Roxana and I do is called the Seminar on Freedom. Mm. So here's another thing, just to wrap things up. Um, maybe you'd tell us a little bit about what you think of when you hear this complicated, twisty, complex word, freedom. What is freedom? It's a hard word. Um, I mean, what I go to is the the there's individual freedom and there's community freedom and this big, great balance between the individual and the community um, which can go in extremes in either direction I think as a problem so I, I feel like it's a, a very um, complex issue what freedom is I, I'd like to say it's about you know real equal opportunity to for everyone but that's, that's awfully vague. No, but I think your distinction is hugely important because I think that, you know, we do have a, have a tension between individual liberty and kind of the idea of freedom for a community. And so the black freedom movement was identifying an obstacle and naming it, the women's liberation, identifying an obstacle and moving against it, right? And yet in our country today, the idea of the individual has risen so high that we talk about the freedom to extract oil from, you know, South Dakota forever, and the freedom to um, and the freedom not to wear masks when when wear a mask. everyone Put else is going to die. Um, yeah, the freedom to <laughs> not wear a mask, not get vaccinated, to um, you know, to to walk around with high-powered rifles in state capitals. This is also cast as freedom. But there's really nothing new in that because if you think about it, the Civil War, we all know, was fought for freedom, right? On the one hand, the freedom of enslaved people to not be enslaved. 
On the other hand, and this is the language of it if you go back, the freedom to own other people. And that's what the Confederacy said. Yeah, right. How dare you take away my freedom to own another? Wow. Yeah. So we have to be, it's a tricky <laughs> Careful word. Careful with the word, right? Yeah. I mean, which really just, you know, I was talking to a, uh, an academic friend about the definition of freedom, and she said, well, it's a social construct. Um, you know, it's, our idea of freedom is completely based on the society we live in and what, what we, um, our, what our conditioning is. Well, I don't know. It's most of us in this room are old, are old enough to remember when there was no such thing as the disability community. Mm -hmm. That's a great example of a self-identified group coming together and saying, this is an obstacle to my humanity. Let's get together and fight it. And suddenly, we not only had laws passed in Washington, but we had a militant social movement. And some of us participated in that where wheelchairs were stacked up against the government offices. And yeah. that was an exciting moment. But that was an example of social freedom, naming an obstacle to your or your neighbor's humanity. And then right. and moving. I um, one thing I think about is, uh, you know, there's this whole issue now of all these schools and communities wanting to ban, ban lots of books, right, in their freedom. freedom. I'm sure they look at it in terms of freedom. Absolutely. Um, and then I think that people, many people, leftists included, would, would also want to ban certain books. They probably wouldn't want to have Mein Kampf, like, available. I don't know. As You know, bookstores are all about, and libraries are all about making choices, right? So it probably wouldn't be like your first choice. Or a book by uh, a white supremacist, you know, giving their personal philosophy, right? I mean, we would choose not to have certain books. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, we could talk about banning <laughs> books for the rest of the evening also. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I think we should draw to a close. It is after eight, and we should thank uh, Susan Mills for writing this book and for coming tonight and speaking with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming to Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment on the clock of the universe. Let's look at the society as it is and let's get busy in projects of repair. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the regenerative and provocative podcast, Ergo. To our co-conspirators, Roxana Espos, Light Eiley, and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make yourself into a bold and courageous border crosser. With joy in my heart and freedom in my mind, until next time. <laughs>